Here we go. Hello and welcome into the Section 109 podcast from Studio Breezy. I'm here with Matthew, Sir Mix-a-Lot, Bobble Juan, and Omar, Coach Omar. How are you, man? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. So the first hard-hitting question, how are we supposed to say your last name? Badran. Badran? Do you have any nicknames? I do have a lot of nicknames from former teammates that I can't say on air. <laughs> <laughs> that makes, good. Not, that makes them good. They're not family friendly, uh, but they do stick for a long time. <laughs> so to most on the field, I'm guessing you weren't called Omar a ton. They probably had a lot of nicknames for you. Off the field, the, the players call you coach. They call you Omar. Yeah, it varies. It varies, you know, especially in the college setting. I think the culture in America is to call the coach coach. Mm. rather than on a first name basis and then as you go in more into the professional world where it's more personable players tend to call you by your first name nice that's sort of noticed what do you like omar you don't like you don't love the hey coach no because the second you start to attach your identity based on your position it starts to affect your thinking it affects your mindset so your identity is not your role it's not your job it's not your title it's your behavior your day-to-day -day life what you bring to work on a daily basis so i am who i am i'm not my title i understand now why he's here yep i yep. one sentence i think everybody just got it <laughs> omar take us take us back to your um to the beginning of your soccer journey so where'd you grow up you know when did you start playing you know kind of take us take us through your family all all yeah. the things yeah so i i was born and raised in lebanon uh, i was born into a soccer family you know my grandfather played for the national team world cup world cup qualifiers uh, my uncles played pro so i come from a very soccer oriented background and then at the age of 16, 17, I went to the United Kingdom. And over there, I did my undergraduate degree in exercise and sports science. And over there, I turned pro. So I started in the Northwest Counties, which was the semi-pro league, and then worked my way up from there. And then after that, it became sort of a journeyman. I played in Norway, Italy, which was really fascinating. And then Saudi Arabia for about three years. And then I came to the U.S. about five years ago did two master's degrees in sports management and executive coaching. Oh, wow. Just, just casually, of, two, just two, casually uh, two masters. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it was, it was not easy. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I wasn't the most academically bright student, but I was curious. So that's my strength as a coach is I'm just curious. I want to learn. I want to get better. And then, yeah, I did my coaching licenses and uh, met some fantastic people along the, along the way. And I, I would say my career really started when I became a coach. That's when I started to figure out who I really was and what I can contribute. So what, uh, what are like some of the clubs you played for? Uh, and, and what position were you? Yeah, so I, I, in England, it was for Staley Bridge Celtic and Curzon Ashton. And I was a goalkeeper. So I had a big mouth. <laughs> Hence why a lot of the nicknames I had can't be said on air. <laughs> Okay, I, so, I yeah. see now. I, good, I, I good held people accountable. I held people Let's just put it that way. That's the most politically correct way I can put it. Yeah, and then when in Italy, I was training with Hermes Fulgoni, who is the goalkeeper coach who uh, discovered Buffon, Gianluigi Buffon, became goalkeeper coach for the Japanese national team. So he he is one probably one of the best goalkeeper coaches I've ever I've ever seen. Uh, in Norway, I trained for a while with Lynn Oslo, who were in the Tippe Ligan. I, the year after that, they folded because of financial issues. 
And in Saudi Arabia, I bounced around between Al Nasser, Al Faisali, so a bunch of teams that you haven't heard of. And then, yeah, I came over to the to the U.S. and decided to super pursue my education. Is that Al Nasser, the famous one right now that's signing all the big players? Yes, that's the one. How weird, <laughs> how weird is that for you? It's it has... more funny than weird. Go just ahead. because I know the facilities, I know what he's walking into, so it's just banter, knowing that he's walking into that. Uh, and I don't think he realizes how late some of his payments are going to be. So I, I hope his agent warned him about that. <laughs> that's so... So crazy. Um, so did you play any position but goalkeeper? I was always a goalkeeper. I mean, I, I started playing soccer very late. I mean, I was 15 when I started playing seriously. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I was very late. You know, I was heavy into tennis, into swimming. I was playing all, si all kinds of sports. And then, yeah, soccer just became became a passion when I was 15, 16. Okay, how, how tall are you? I'm 6'1". So 6'1", good, solid goalkeeper size. What number did you wear? 77. Always? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. That was my choice. That is fantastic. This podcast has a strong disagreement between Matthew and I on numbers. I'm a traditional number kind of guy. Mm -hmm. I like the 1 through 11. If I could have my my um, my ideal 11, everybody would wear the 1 through 11. Matthew is a pure chaos merchant, and mm -hmm. he would prefer nobody wear any traditional numbers. Uh, he loves that Tolly wears 97. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just... Soccer, soccer is about expressing yourself on the field, and that starts with the jersey you put on, and what numbers on the back of that of that jersey. I love, it. and so a goalkeeper wearing seventy seven right up his alley. Also very Buffon. I I enjoy that tremendously. Yeah, that's the main inspiration for it. <laughs> I love it. Um, two. So I have two follow up questions. Number one, if you could play, if you could have like gone pro in a different sport, what would it have been? Probably tennis probably tennis just because it's hyper demanding from not just the physical but from an emotional point of view mm. um, i mean it's a sport that you have to start since the age of eight you know you have to specialize real early in that sport go through academies yeah it's, it's very demanding and i'm just i'm attracted to that i'm attracted to high demands and pressure and those are the types of environments that i'm drawn to did you do those two masters at the same time no no, I didn't. <laughs> one after one after the other. You overestimate my capabilities. <laughs> well, you, you said high pressure, and I was like, "Wait a minute." Yeah, I know my limits, though. <laughs> That's yeah. my my other my other question was just about uh like on uh, so you played goalkeeper. Was there was like the only position you really ever played, and and is there a position that you wished you would have picked up in in, in the field? Yeah, goalkeeper was always my my position. You know, I never strayed away from that. Of course, every goalkeeper thinks he's a striker. So, <laughs> recreationally, I always put myself as a forward. We played a little, we played a little five aside when Omar and I kind of met and hung out for the first time and uh, scored a couple goals. Listen, I'll say one thing. <laughs> scored a couple goals. Listen, I'll say one thing. At least we suffered together. We did. We suffered, but at least we suffered together. <sighs> we did. Oh, suffer. you guys were on the same team for the corporate cup. Well, actually, Omar is a hero. He was not on the team. He was just coming to support and be a good guy. <laughs> I got dragged into Showed it. up in my Armani shirt. You know, like I'm here just to chill. And he, like, and, and he and he was he was mingle. The, I'm here to mingle. And, and he, then Alton just looks at me and says, "Why aren't you playing?" And I was like, "Well, I guess I'm playing." No. He <laughs> he said no about six times in a row to like different. And then he was like, he gave out the ultimate, like, "Ah, well, man, I don't have shoes. If you guys can find me some shoes, I, I'd play, but I don't have shoes." And that was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> we found some shoes. That's rookie mistake right there. <laughs> it took like yes. three different people. We found him some shoes. No, I was happy to play. I had fun. I just wish we won more. So it, it was it was one of 
of my favorite things, and, and Omar and I, we don't know each other super well yet, but you can see the com- the competitive fire in, you know, like pe- at people who compete at a high level, uh, in my experience, they they all have that same thing. And, and most of them really struggle to play. Like, it's either just for fun walking around or it's hard, I gotta win. Like the the middle ground, they kind of, I think the rest of the world lives in, and, and one of the reasons like I will never achieve like one of them and athletic gifts and whatever else, like the, the highest sporting pinnacles is I don't have that drive to like, you know, the competitive drive, but you see that in like former pros where you can just catch little glimpses of it. You're like, man, you're, you know, that you, that little mistake, you're not forgiving yourself. Like, you know, X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I think you, you have to be able to do two things at once, especially when you're in a team sport, you know, unlike tennis or golf where you only have to worry about yourself you kind of have to hold two opposite ideas at the same time. So, for example, being humble, knowing that you can always be better, you can always improve, you can always give more, there's always something to improve, and being hyper-confident at the same time. So most people make the mistake of choosing one or the other. They ask themselves, should I be humble today? Should I be confident? you got to be both. Or being ruthless, but also showing forgiveness and compassion. So it's, it's that hard balance of being a, a goalkeeper, even an outfielder or a captain or a leader. That's a lesson I have to learn real quick is you have to hold two opposite opinions at the same time, which is not easy. It's not easy at all. Transitioning to coaching, when you were transitioning from player to coach, how did that transition happen? And was that all deliberate or did, it, what, did you kind of fall into it? I never thought I would be a coach. Never. Um, because being an athlete is a very selfish pursuit because you have to worry about yourself all the time your body your mind you have to say no to so many people that invite you out to social gatherings it's very selfish it's a very insular small world but as a coach it's the polar opposite you have to be selfless you have to care about others you're responsible for others you're responsible for 25 young men on the team so that was the biggest transition is the shift in mindset from being inward to outward and then just being curious you know i don't think as a player i was as curious as I wanted to be because I had tunnel vision. It was all about winning, being competitive, being the best version of myself. But as a coach, it's it's a complete 180. It's a complete 180. The same amount of dedication and drive, but um, you, you what you're focusing on is is literally not you. It's everyone except for yourself. Yeah, it's a totally different point of view. Was that hard to learn? No, because I had fantastic mentors. You know, it's that simple. I had, uh, when I was a player, I saw amazing coaches, you know, Raul Canida and Al Nasser, Hermes Fulgoni in Italy. I had Craig Ellison in, um, in the UK, who played at the highest level uh, in England. I had fantastic mentors. So I learned at a young age what leadership looks like and what type of leader I wanted to be. So I've had to borrow a little bit from everybody and uh, to personalize my own leadership profile. There are very, very few new good ideas. So you got to beg, borrow, and steal. Something I believe very strongly in. You got to learn from others. 100%. Where'd you do your coaching badges? I did them all in the U.S. Yeah. That's not only a a tiring uh, pursuit, an expensive pursuit. Very expensive. Yeah, absolutely. But the connections you make are invaluable. You know, I, I have another mentor on there who was my instructor, uh, and we still talk, you know, four years later. And he's the chief technical officer at U.S. Soccer. So he's with the national team all the time. Like just the depth of knowledge he has, his curiosity, his willingness to help people. 
it just it's blow it blows my mind and like if i can be somewhere close to him then it's it's mission accomplished for me so i've i've been surrounded by i've been very lucky i've been surrounded by good people where was your first uh coaching gig wow first coaching gig i'm trying to think it was either it was queen city it was actually with chris it was with queen city mutiny we were coaching teenagers like 14 year olds 15 year olds together in, in charlotte what in charlotte what year was this roughly around 2017 i want to say yeah this so is when i first came to the u.s like straight off the plane i got in and yeah we see was i was his assistant coach there and were you in the middle of doing your uh, coaching badges and your master's degree yeah so you were very <laughs> busy but you're like oh, i'll pick up a, a coaching gig here now so you said he was the head coach and you were the assistant coach yeah for the o5s so who are the u15s at the time how was that experience yeah, I just couldn't believe how lucky I was to work with someone with Chris. Like Chris is, he's an exceptional coach, but he's also like an amazing person. And it's so rare to have both. Usually you're, you have an incompetent nice guy or a competent <laughs> jerk, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, totally. It's, it's usually how it goes. But, you know, to find someone who has both, it's, uh, it was eye-opening. And I'm like, if I can be half the coach that Chris is... I'm, I'll be happy. Then I will have achieved my goals and in my you, coaching career. And you didn't know him before you started that job? No. Did uh, did he quickly try to explain expected goals to you? Very quickly. <laughs> I think I learned more about expected goals before I learned his name. <laughs> it's like, hey, do you want to go for a beer? Sure. It just goes, oh, expected goals. So the position of the Shah is really important. I was like, uh, my name is Omar. How are you? <laughs> That's beautiful. How do you feel about video analysis? Is that something you, you do at all? It's crucial. It's crucial. I don't think you can compete at a high level. I don't think you can achieve growth, which is ultimately the performance. Like you, you hear a lot about high performance cultures. I don't believe in that. I believe in high growth cultures. I don't think you can grow without video analysis. So how does, for anyone who, who may not know, how does video analysis work in, the, in coaching soccer players and coaching soccer teams? Uh, I think this is more down to opinion. I'm, uh, I'm of the opinion that you have to go by the 80-20 rule. You know, I spoke to a lot of neuroscientists because neuroscientists know how the brain works. They know what's the best environment to learn. And they say usually the 80-20 rule is the best way to go, where 80% of what you show them is reinforcing good behavior and 20% is the corrective behavior mm. that you need to change. And they generally try to stay away from the sandwich where you go positive, negative, yeah, positive. Because yeah. it confuses people. And they're like, well, are you complimenting me or are you criticizing me? And like, People don't know what to feel in that moment. So me personally, again, it's just based on opinion. I'm sure someone smarter than me has a better insight. But I try to stay away from the sandwich model as much as possible. Now, if you're doing video analysis, and this podcast is nothing if not super nerdy, is it mostly video analysis on like, here's a, a shot of the whole field from one of those, you know, green cams that shoots the whole field. Here's what we're looking at. This is good. This is bad. Or is it more like, hey, individual player here, we're looking at only you on like, how does the, you know, how does that break down? Yeah. I'll, I'll, the best way I can explain it is by quoting Mourinho. You know, he used to say, I don't coach football players. I coach football teams. So... Because every movement from one player depends on what someone else is doing. It depends on where the opponent is. It depends on who's making the run. It depends on what your teammate is doing. So when a player says, what am I supposed to do when I get the ball here? I'm like, well, it depends where's 
Where's the number 10? Where's the number six? What's their body shape like? Where are they, where are they looking? What's the level of pressure from the opposition? So context is king. So it all depends on context. So anytime you're doing video analysis, it's always best to go from a team perspective rather than, uh, rather than telling a player what they should do in a binary black and white situation, mm. if that makes sense. Sure. So, and, and is video analysis something, is something I'm just super curious about? Is it something that is every week there's going to be a few sessions where there's video shown? Is it every few weeks? Is it after every game? Like how does, you know, how often is it? Every week. Every week. You do opposition scouting and then uh, you do a performance analysis of your own game. Again, Chris is the expert in this on performance analysis. I'm more of an expert on team cultures, interpersonal group dynamics, leadership. And that's kind of, that's 90% of the reason I was, I was brought into CFC. So let's let's get to some of that. You said, and I'm going to butcher what you said, so please correct me. Uh, it's not about high achieving; it's about high growth. Correct. Like, can you dig a little deeper on that? Yeah, I mean, the best way I can explain it, and and like a, the simplest way I can put it is, habits dictate where you go, right? Everyone has a ceiling to their talent, but I'm not concerned about the physical talent that someone has or the mindset talent. I'm more concerned about habits on a day-to-day -day basis. Like I'll give you an example. Like my habit is I read 50 pages a day. So it can be any topic. It can be on, on tactics, performance analysis, psychology, whatever it is, whatever the topic is. 50 pages by itself is nothing. It's not going to make you a better coach. 50 pages across a week is 350 pages. You multiply that by four. So like in a month, that's 1,400 pages. Multiply that by 12, you get 16,000. You multiply that by six, so we're going across six years, that's 100,800 pages. So am I smarter than other coaches? No. Am I more talented? No. Do I have a higher IQ? No. But I have better habits. And the reason I'm successful is because I have a tiny habit that I do every day, and that gets me to 100,000 pages, so it gives me the depth of knowledge that I can actually help players, help coaches, and help organizations. So my biggest priority with players is what habits do you have that will take you to where you want to go? Something that Coach Rod talked about when we had him on was that he was uh, really, really focused on leadership. Um, I assume, and I could be wrong, bringing you in is a part of that focus on leadership. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, what kind of, what does your week look like? Um, I realize you just arrived a few weeks ago. It's not mm -hmm. like you've been here a long time, but what kind of, what is your coaching responsibilities look like and what does your week look like? How does it break down? Well, most of the time is spent observing and listening. Um, generally, it takes me between three and four months to get all the data that I need, uh, both qualitative and quantitative. Like I have players and coaches fill out surveys on measuring the culture. You know, what's the criteria for success? How are we defining success? What, uh, how does the organizational leadership behave? What's the management of the players like? How much of it is aggressive, no-nonsense, win at all costs? And how much of it is based on looking after people's mental health or whatever? Because attention is finite. Like Attention is the most valuable currency you have, really. Mm -hmm. it's, the most, it's more important than time because you are, you are the sum of what you focus on. So I spent the first three to four months observing and just listening to people, watching training sessions, watching body language, and then testing assumptions. So I can pull a player aside and ask, hey, what does the coaching staff value most? Give me your top three. And then I can see, okay, does that mesh with what Rod is trying, with Rod's message, with Chris's message, Juan's, Jordan's, and everyone else? So 
My job is to dig deep the first three to four months. The worst thing that I can do is to give recommendations or interpretations before I've fully observed. Because we've all been there. We've all given advice to people before we know the full, the full story, the full sure. picture. We're all guilty of that, including myself. So it's really important that I don't open my mouth before I've done my homework and my due diligence. So three months is basically going to take you to the end of October, where, you know, hopefully when November 1 comes around, we've got one more game than the, the final hopefully uh, hopefully right so how do you how do you square uh like this intense looking into the, the club and, and, the, and the team with the off season like literally around the corner when you get to that like kind of three four months time frame uh can you elaborate a little bit more just like is there is are, are you are you digging down on you know, transitioning from from this group into essentially picking the next group, and and you know, obviously there's the the dynamics of who's who's going to have their options renewed, who's going to you know be say thank you for your service, but we're going to go in a different direction, that type of deal, and then like like how do how do you like gel all of that down right at a critical point where we start making decisions uh, to to prepare for like what we're looking for for the next year's group? Yeah, no, it's it's that's a million dollar question. Um, and I can't, I can't really give an answer until I know how much are the principles being applied. You know, we have something called, like in my line of work, we have something called taken for granted assumptions. So for example, if you're the CEO of a company and you say, I don't know, hard work is really important for you. The mistake that most leaders make is they don't re-emphasize and over-communicate and reinforce that message. So if you mention a message once a month, as an employee, it tells me that that message is not that important to you. But the best leaders I, I, um, I've worked for, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you something, the frequency of the message is more important than the message itself. So every week, my, my coach would tell me, you, you're gonna, I can't say this on camera, but like, he's, you're gonna die for me. You're like, there's no non-negotiable. You have to be holding people accountable. You've got to be ruthless. You've got to, and he said this to me every week. So there was no confusion. There was no open interpretation about what he was asking for. Players need guidance. Employees need guidance. They need clarity more than anything else. I can get on board with any principles, any philosophy. You know, I love Rod's philosophy. I love the team's philosophy. My job is to measure what is clear and what is unclear. So there is no right or wrong. There's clear and there's uncertainty. I absolutely love that. The other thing I love is that when we interviewed Chris the first time, um, we, we asked Chris, like, what's the ideal way to play football or whatever else? He said, I don't know. He said, I, I don't really care. And we we're like, well, what do, you, what do you mean? And I'm paraphrasing here. And he said, you know, I, Rod's principles, my job is to make whatever Rod wants to do more effective and better. So if Rod wants to play like this, then my job is to analyze the data and help coach and help make us better at whatever Rod wants to do. It doesn't matter what I want to do. My job is to make Rod more, mm -hmm. Rod's philosophy more, which is just yeah, hearing yeah. you say that's a, it's like a different side of the same coin, I think, which is like everybody's in alignment on making whatever the vision is, whatever the leadership is, whatever the, the direction we're going. It's not about what you think is right, or what, and you can correct me if you think I'm misinterpreting this, but it's not what you think is right. It's not what Chris thinks is right. It's that whatever we're doing, we're doing all together, and we're doing it in the best way possible. Clear about what you want, flexible about how you're going to get there. Those are the two key sentences. You have to be clear about what you're demanding from the players, what you want from the coaching staff, 
and extremely flexible about how we're going to get there because there's a million ways to win. There's a million ways to have a successful team, successful culture. I'm not going to walk into the team and be like, hey, uh, we need to change A, B, and C because the team was undefeated before I showed up. <laughs> so clearly, there is a lot that's going right. And you know, I, I told the players this yesterday, if anyone here is expendable, it's me. <laughs> it's, 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 really, it's the truth. It's, it's, on, it's a fact. So uh, I, my, my job is to give clarity, it's to test assumptions, and see how we can create stronger relationships to get higher standards. So I want to back up a little bit. You, you coached with Chris on your first coaching. Mm -hmm. How did you end up here? Like take us through kind of, um, yeah, Chris is someone I always considered a friend. So I, we just stayed in touch. We always talked. Um, he's someone I really look up to. I consider him a mentor. Uh, and then after that, I went to coach for UNC Charlotte, uh, for the women's team. And then after that, I think I went to Des Moines, Iowa for the USL two team there. For the menace? For the menace. And we after made a that, little trip to the menace this year. Yeah. Yeah. That was fun to watch by the way. <laughs> that was a fun, it was fun that to was be fun. there. It was yeah. very fun to be there. So, uh, yeah. So then after that, and by the way, I left. So, yeah, Chattanooga played against Des Moines in the U.S. Open Cup, right? Yes, in yeah. early April. Yeah. So I was there that previous summer we, where, we reached, where, uh, where I was coaching with the coaching staff. Made there. the PDL final, right? Or they the made the Central Conference final. Central Conference yeah, final, okay. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. then um, after that, I went to Loudoun. So, yeah, I went to Loudoun, coached there for a while. And then uh, Rod and Chris were with CFC. You playing against the Bobcats in Maryland, and I was just around the corner. I was in DC, so yeah, I just met them at their hotel, and we just started talking. And one thing led to another, and here I am. Had you met Rod before? Yeah, I worked for Rod actually at Stumptown in uh, <laughs> oh, North Carolina. Stumptown. Yeah, Stumptown. you've been you've been through uh, a few different uh, a few <laughs> different. Um, uh, iconic shit shows in uh, in in Stumptown. You learn a lot. You learn a lot from from those experiences. You know, you learn what is present, but you also learn what's absent. And my one of the hardest things about my job is you have to see what's absent more than anything. So, yeah. so when what what part of the the Stumptown season were you working? Were you working there? Their very first season. So when it was just, when it was like their infancy, it was their inaugural season when they finished uh, third in the league, I think. Oh, so you were there for the for the spring portion, correct? And then Chris came in for the fall portion. Yeah, but you guys didn't actually overlap. For we that. overlapped for about four weeks. <laughs> yeah, this was just destiny that you were going to end up here. Yeah, um, I'm so time. lucky that I get to work with him again because uh, uh, you know I was I had left Loudon. I was speaking with my dad, and I was like, I can't pass up another opportunity to work with Chris. It's just not, it's, not, it's a non-negotiable for me. So, and then the more I learned from agents and people all over the country, I was asking about CFC. Everyone had amazing, amazing things to say about the organization, the community, the city, the team. So it's, it was a no-brainer. I love that. Um, so that's also, that's also really nice to hear about. Uh, agents and coaches? The, yeah. the reputation. We'll, we'll take it. From, from people that are sending current coaches, future coaches, players, whatever. Like that's that's just nice to hear. So I have a, a, a question from producer Jay, um, who who's unfortunately missing today due to some um, family things that came up at the last second. Uh, you said you've coached and played in five countries. Um, I don't know if that's actually correct, but that's what he wrote here. When it comes to football, what does what does the U.S. do well that other countries should replicate, and what do we need to do clearly better that to replicate other countries? You can take that whichever direction you want: coaching, playing, whatever. Oh, that's a good one. That's a really good one. 
You mean on the pro side? I think he means on the pro side, but if you want to take it to the amateur side you, or the refereeing side or whatever side you want to go. Or all of them. Like, yeah. Yeah, I guess the one thing, especially doing the coaching licenses, I guess the one thing I would like to see the U.S. do more is when they, when they, I mean, I guess they're doing this now, so props to the U.S. for that. But when I was doing my licenses a couple of years ago, it seemed that they would start off on a path and then they would regret starting that path and they would change it altogether two years later. So just whatever the plan is, just stick to the plan, right? Because when you change the plan every two years, you're having to start from scratch all over again. Mm. So being more process-oriented rather than anything else and just being on the same page because it, it felt like some of the instructors were not on the same page. It seemed like everybody was doing their own thing. Uh, but I guess that's improving now based on some of my friends who are now curr currently doing their A license. Uh, so just more continuity. Um, and then I guess one more thing that I would add is when you go in the UEFA licenses, UEFA courses, you can have a three-hour debate with someone about something tactical, disagree, and then still go out for a beer later. Whereas here, and again, it's just my experience. I'm not saying this, this is the case. I'm not, I could be completely off base here, but there is a lot of ego here. So if you disagreed with someone on the license about basic principles or what this player should do in this moment or in this instance, people get hyper defensive and it escalates and there's a lot of raised voices, which I never understood. So especially coming from schools from like ACC or SEC, coaches that we had on, on, my, on my course, I just never understood why things were taken personally when you disagreed. Whereas I know I, coaches from Scotland, England, from those countries that have done the UEFA courses, they say, yeah, we have violent disagreements about principles or, or, or what to do on transitions in certain moments, but none of it's taken personally. We can still have a beer afterwards, still relax and continue chatting. I cannot imagine that Scottish coaches and Spanish coaches really uh, see eye to eye on on some some things in football. What? No, <laughs> that just that that feels like uh, about as about as divergent as it gets. Another question from from Jay. Um, he says there's always been a debate around the best way to train goalkeepers or goalies in football and in, in hockey and soccer and lacrosse. Um, one kind of focused on rigid form and the other on a more fluid and, and a natural approach. Um, where do you do you have opinions on that as a coach or as a player? I think training has to look like the game. So it has to replicate what the game will look like. Now, how much of it is technical and how much of it is testing your decision making? That's the million-dollar question. Um, and at the pro level, it tends to be an even split. How much do you do technical work and how much of it do you, is testing your positioning, your, your decision-making, you know, how, how fast do you come off your line or do you stay on your line? What are the cues you're looking for? Uh, it varies from team to team and it, and it varies on the demands of the team. You know, if you're playing a possession game, with a high line, your goalkeeper needs to be a sweeper. You need to defend 50 yards of space in front of you. So that's very different from a team that plays in a low block and you have to save shots from outside the box. So it really depends on the game model, what the head coach is looking for, and that will determine what that training looks like generally. What kind of goalkeeper were you? What kind of goal? I liked the ball at my feet. I like taking risks. I like making strikers. <laughs> At, at the price of giving my head coach a heart attack, I, I yeah, uh, I'm a risk taker. You would you would be what Jurgen Klopp called, uh, well, 
That's what you. That's what you get when you have a Brazilian keeper. <laughs> yeah, in my case, a Saudi keeper. Yeah. <laughs> no, I I love being part of the build up. I love passing, but I also love shot stopping. I love saving penalties, and I I actually love dealing with crosses. I just love that part of the game. Some goalkeepers hate it because they know they're going to get hurt. There's going to be elbows flying, but that's just part of the game that I was really drawn to. Sweeper keeper a little bit too. Like yeah. running, running out and taking the risk, trying to get there before the striker gets there. Love it. Love it. And then, you know, slip a comment as <laughs> as I kick the ball as hard as possible. And into the parking lot. Into the park. Well, or into the stadium, into the fence, depending if it's a home game or an away game. <laughs> yes. Determin- determines like what kind of shape you put on that ball. <laughs> How much venom goes in that kick determined, is determined by whether it's home or away. Absolutely. Um, let's transition to some miscellaneous questions. Uh, first impressions of Chattanooga when you got here. Had you been here before now? Never. Never been here Did, before. You, did, you didn't come on the uh, on the road trip that Stumptown in that, in that spring season played? Here? No. I actually did not travel on away games because I was doing my master's. So uh, I yeah. just assumed because Stumptown didn't have yeah. any money. <laughs> <laughs> You're uh, a bad Firing guy. shots at a club that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> You're a bad guy, Matthew. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> All right, R.I.P. Sumtown. Um, what would you be if you weren't a pro soccer coach? That's a great question. If I wasn't a coach, would you be like a business coach or leadership coach? Yeah, because I did like some work for like Bank of America clients and executive coaching. So yeah, I would probably do that. How do you feel about jean jackets? Jean jackets. <laughs> yeah. Never worn them. So no, I'm agnostic on jean jackets. So it's not a yay or nay. It's not, you know, not no experience. So no opinion. None. What would you name a boat if you had one? Black Wolf. <laughs> love it. I love it. What's the best purchase you've made in the last year um, of $100 or less? just make it accessible. That's been like the most positive thing in your life. I'll give you an example. I have a $18 mouse that I went from using a touchpad on mm. my laptop to having a physical mouse. And it is such a game changer. And it's, you know, it's less than 20 bucks. It's been so good. Do you have a purchase in the last year that sticks out to you? Yes. I bought, um, I don't know what you call them in English, but it's like the thing that covers your eyes when you sleep. A sleep, mask. A sleep mask. You see, yeah. So that helps me a lot because I'm the type of guy that even if there's a little bit of sunlight or light in the room, it disrupts my sleep. So that's probably been the most... Is it a weighted one? Is it padded? Anything special about it? No, it just blocks out everything. Gotcha. Yeah. They have ones that are like, have like padded gel around them now. I mean, they've, they've gotten really like advanced with... Mm-hmm. Um, I've, they bother me, so I'm not, I've, I don't use them. Um, but I've, I've seen people, t- people who, who like say they're helpful, like you say, that like it's a game changer for sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, what percentage of the game do you think is mental and what percentage is physical for a player? Uh, I think you're missing a few categories in there. Uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. Redefine the question. Let's go. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's like six or seven. There's physical, there's psychological, there's tactical, there's technical, there's social, there's cognitive. And the cognitive is the decision-making part, which, you know, for Rod is exceptionally important, right? Decision-making, decision-making, decision-making. Like these six categories are unbelievably important. And I think how much emphasis or weight you put to whichever category depends on the situation. 
So like, let's say if the team is nervous, if momentum is going against us, if, you know, it's, it's that situation, maybe the social part is most important. Like who's the galvanizer on the team? Who's the tenacious one? Who's going to be the one that has the scorched earth mentality like us against the world? And then when it's, let's say, nil-nil and it's a tight game, maybe the cognitive side is most important because you need that one pass to unlock the opponent. And then in a penalty shootout, I think the psychological is the most important. Um, and that's something that I've done a lot of presentations on penalty shootouts and how to win them. Mm. Um, there's no, there's nothing in life that guarantees success, but you can boost your chances of winning. So there's definitely ways to do that on penalty shootouts. Are you willing to share some of those things in the podcast? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, one thing is the time it takes. So the time between the whistle of the ref and your movement towards the ball. The faster you go to the ball after the referee's whistle, the more likely you are to miss. And there's a correlation with that. In the last hundred years, they looked at penalty kicks. That's why England are the absolute worst <laughs> when it comes to penalties. But I'm not even bantering anyone. Like it's, It is because it's, it bears out in the data because England, the, their average of time between the whistle of the referee and the movement towards the ball is 0.2 seconds. As soon as the whistle blows, they're going. Correct. Now you look at France, Germany, the Czech Republic that are historically, they've won much more penalty shootouts. That number goes up to 0.9, 1.2. So it's the pause, it's is the it, breath. Is, is, the is, it a, is it a bit of a bell curve where if you wait too long, like the nerves like all of a sudden come back in? Not necessarily, no, okay. because like the wait time doesn't generally go above 1.5 seconds. Uh, but, you know, England, 0.2, and then you see the trajectory of the most successful penalty kicks are the ones that wait the longest. And Interesting. then there's the uh, amount of steps in the run-up. The most successful, I think, is between four and seven steps, statistically. And then there's... The more you look at the goalkeeper during the run-up or before the run-up, the more likely you are to miss. Uh, so there's just these little things that I can empirically back. There's a lot of data that backs them up. Of course, nothing guarantees success. But if you do your homework and you do it the right way, um, your chances of winning go up. And then the last thing I'd say is during a penalty shootout, you generally have four phases. You have the huddle where the team talks before the penalty shootout. You have the wait on the halfway line. You have when the penalty kick taker walks towards the penalty. And then you have the penalty itself. Which of these four do you think induces the most anxiety? The walk. I'm going to say being at the halfway line. So it's waiting at the halfway line. Really? So they surveyed about 650 players um, at the highest level. And the, the part, the phase that induces the most anxiety is the wait. It's waiting on the halfway line. So if we can give players a coping mechanism, breathing exercises, or talking to each other, whatever, whatever that is, there's a million ways to do it, that helps induce the anxiety. Because if you think, if you go to the dentist, the waiting in the waiting room is actually more anxiety inducing than being in the chair. So the wait is, uh, the waiting for your turn or waiting for someone to go is actually the most anxiety inducing. So it's how do you deal with that? Usually the walk up and the penalty itself of course, it's anxious, but it's it's far less than what the weight does. 
that this is my favorite part of the podcast. Yeah, this is good. It's so good. So it's just, you know, again, we talk about uh, what, what does it mean to be competitive? And for me, and again, there's a million different definitions, interpretations of what it means to be competitive. But for me, it's about preparation. Are you doing your homework? Are you prepared physically? Are you getting enough hours of sleep? Do you know the roles and responsibilities on the field? Are you holding teammates accountable? It's all preparation. So it's about doing your research, doing your homework, and being curious. So if I, if I, if I held you to take those six categories and just like, and like kind of separate them into physical categories, mental categories, where do you think the line is? on physical and mental, the percentage of the game? I think the higher up the level you go, the mental side wins. Because, at, again, like the higher up the level you go, like especially when I played in Saudi Arabia with Leonardo Alves, who played for the Brazil under 23s, like there's quality players at a high level, but it's the players that can handle the pressure the best that actually go really far. And that's why I feel I've been lucky to have a really good career is because I was good at handling pressure. I wasn't necessarily the most talented. There was a lot of goalkeepers that were in Lebanon. Like, were way better than me, better reflexes, better every. But I, w I was prepared. I was prepared for every training session, prepared for every game. And uh, I had to be honest with myself. I had to ask difficult questions. And uh, I had to be honest with myself and say, do you know what? I can be a lot better. I can be a lot better. Like what I'm doing is not good enough. I'm letting my teammates down, my coaches down, my family down. So you, you have to be honest with yourself. And something I think we don't do enough with players is, of course, we talk about the cost it takes to be an elite player. Time, energy, blah, 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 staying up after training. We don't talk about the emotional cost. It takes, it takes a real sense of vulnerability and like emotional sacrifice to be honest with yourself and say, I got to do more. I have to do more. So it's just preparing players for that because I was willing, as a coach, I'm willing to sacrifice my popularity to raise the standard of the team. Mm -hmm. That's an easy choice for me. If it means winning the final, if that means being the least popular coach in Tennessee, that's an easy choice. Easy choice. It's all about winning. So I don't care about it. There's something called the popularity vortex where leaders make decisions in order to be popular, in order to be liked. Mm -hmm. So that's a trap that I make sure I never fall into. Wow. What's it, uh, what's it like so far in, in your two different tenures now and probably vastly different situations stumped down to now? What's it like to coach under, under Rod? It's the same, but different. Yeah, I mean, he's just a, he's an exceptional coach, an exceptional person, same as Chris. You know, I have nothing, good th nothing but good things to say about him. You know, he gave me a chance when no one would even look at me, you know. So when I was applying for jobs, he, uh, we met, he took a chance on me, and uh, we really enjoyed working together because we're both competitive. We're both competitive. Like, we come from vastly different backgrounds. Like, I come from the Middle East, different religion, different culture, different backgrounds, pff, different upbringing. But the sport brought us together. And I think now he's just, he's more vicious, which I like, <laughs> which I like. I like that. I like that. I think you need, and I was, I was telling one of the captains today, actually, this morning, we need to make a little bit of room for negativity because it's against human nature to be positive all the time. 
it's just it's not doable it, it like you it, like when you hear someone say be positive all the time but that's not how we're wired biologically right where biologically your brain tries to anticipate danger it worries as we talked about before the podcast <laughs> so so make making a little bit of room for negativity is healthy as long as it's followed by something positive mm -hmm. and that's why like the season my most successful season as a player training was uncomfortable we pushed each other we pushed each other there was fighting there was conflict but it brought everyone's standards up and we trusted each other and then after the fighting it resulted in a hug it resulted in, hey man i love you let's work together for the team let's do what's best for the team and that's uh that's the lesson that i tried to bring into cfc i think under that calm rod exterior the uh, the stoic exterior and you catch it in little in little glimpses is is, is someone who's unbelievably competitive as you have to be and again it goes back to balancing two opposite ideas at the same time he's ruthless he's also compassionate right it's he's it, he, like it's this and that it's not or it's and yeah it's humble and confident so it's i think it's think i think it's something that rod and chris do very well and that's why i'm really glad to be working with for them again because i can learn a lot from them still i'm still i'm i'm only 33 so i'm still i have a lot of room to grow and I think working with uh, Rod and Chris and from the, with the player perspective as well, we're so lucky to have the captains we have. People don't talk about that enough, but you can be the best coach in the world. If you don't have the right personnel as far as team leaders go on the team, your job is impossible. It's impossible. So, so the fact that we have people like Richard, people like Alex, people like Anatoly, people like Gene, it makes your life as a coach so much easier. Mm. Perfect. Yeah, I was just going to ask what that captain's group was made up of. Um, I think we all know Richard, and, and then if people playing close attention would know um, Alex after that because he's worn the ca uh, captain's armband every time Rich has taken it off this season, except for once when Colin wore it when they were both off the uh, off the field. But um, how do you get your cardio work in? Do you do any cardio? I'm more of I'm more of a a gym bro. I just I lift a lot. <laughs> a gym rat. So yeah. when, when you were when you were a player, did you have to do cardio, or because you were a goalkeeper, were you able to get away with just game time cardio, and and that was enough? Yeah, the the fitness is different because like for goalkeepers, the fitness is anaerobic, mm -hmm. so it's your body doesn't need the oxygen, so it's just 10, 20 seconds of burst of energy. Sorry, uh, like forty five seconds of burst of energy, and then ATP, which is about ten seconds of burst of energy. Players that are outfielders is more aerobic where it's they have to last for a long time so the training is different for them so for for goalkeepers it's more power explosiveness speed and for uh outfield well i know outfielders work on their speed as well but for them it's more about aerobic capacity and endurance gotcha so how does that so like now nowadays it's just as a coach like you're mostly just going to the gym and just trying to stay fit and and, and do normal yeah things i i try to stay fit like i don't like to send players to places i've never been so i can't ask players hey you need you need to sleep more you need to look after your body more if i'm not willing to do the same so i have to practice what i preach it's personal accountability and the thing with accountability is that a lot of people don't realize it as it has three layers so it's not like accountability is one thing you have personal accountability, so holding yourself to the same standard that you hold others. Like, I'm not going to ask Breezy to pick up the cone if I'm not going to pick up the cone either. The second piece is positive accountability, which is really overlooked, and that's holding people accountable for the good things that they're doing. Like, hey, fantastic leadership. Well done on that. Great job on that. That's being noticed. Keep doing it. And then the last piece of accountability is performance accountability, where you hold them accountable for their performance. 
a lot of people skip the personal and the positive and they go straight into performance. And yeah. that's where even if your coaching point is credible, it doesn't carry weight to the person receiving the feedback because they feel you're not holding yourself to the same standard and they feel like you're not noticing all the good stuff that they're doing. Yeah. So it's personal, positive. And then at the last piece, you can be ruthless with people. Like you'd be surprised some of the stuff I've said to teammates or players, but that's because I, I do the personal and I do the positive or I try to, and then, and then I can get, I can go in hard on their performance. That gives you, you have the credibility. It gives me the credibility. Let's go back to, uh, to that kind of a working out question. Do you listen to music or like podcast or something, or do you go like just the, the, the sounds of whatever around, around yeah. the gym? No, I, I listen to music. I tend to be in my in my own world. What kind of music do you listen to? Just in general, but maybe also with a workout. Uh, rock. I'm a big rock guy. Okay. Like alternative grunge, I think you call it. <laughs> yeah, a lot of British bands I like, like Kasabian, Oasis, uh, Black Keys, which I think is also British. Uh, what else? You know, this might surprise people. I'm really into Kay Flay now. I don't know who that is. Her audience is like 99% teenage girls. <laughs> but I'm like the 1% of adult males that listens to her. She's great. Yeah, she's like right now, that's probably, I listen to her more than anybody. Beautiful. So I love this. Soccer superstitions? None. Preparation. That's my superstition. So be prepared. <laughs> So no, no. If the socks went well last game, you got to wear the same socks. No, no lucky shoes, no lucky jersey as a coach. I I told you attention is a finite resource. So, <laughs> so you focus you're, on. You're a better man than I. So much more emotionally mature than the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> he's got to he's got to burn a jersey because we haven't won Listen, the last two my, games. I, we I, wore I, it. I wore my pride jersey last night for the second time ever at a game, and it will never get worn in the game again. I mean, like three seasons from now, I'll try it again, but we've drawn both games. I've worn it. Like, I will go back. I've worn the same pair of pants and the same shirt at every single um, home win this year, or and way win this year. And I've, um, I might have varied it like once or twice, but basically I've worn the same thing 95% of the, but last night I was like, it's friendly. I'm going to try this out, see if we can get this bad juju out of here. <laughs> nope, didn't work. Do you know what the upside of that is? Is as a coach, that would be hilarious. Like you tell all the players, hey, we got to burn all our stuff, guys. <laughs> get, get the match out, get the lighter. We're burning, burning all our yeah. kit. Yeah. So now like that jersey is now relegated to non-game day wearing. I can't wear it on game day. It's I just... wore I wore the white jersey for the first time because I, I think we had we had drawn. I think it was like the Club de Leon uh, game that we, we drew. And I, I think it was wearing navy that night. And I was like, right, well, I got to switch this up now. And I wore Actually, white for for LA Force for the for the double headers uh, for the uh, for the, the Michigan Stars game, the independent, independent Cup game, the Savannah Clovers game. And so I wore white for Flower City Union uh, last the, the other week, and we drew that game. And so I was like, well, I'm switching it up. It's a friendly. Like, I'll, I'll wear the black jersey. Uh, but Maddie wore the white jersey. And I don't think the white jersey can come back in the stadium either. Because now we've drawn two games in a row with this. Did you come up with one? No. No, I do, I do have one. It's not a superstition. It's something that I do at the end of every game. I try to go out to as many players as possible and tell them, like, I'm proud of them, I care about them, mm. especially if the result doesn't go our way. It's like, I don't want to fall into that trap where you only praise people when things are going well, because that's another way to lose credibility. So, especially when players are pissed, 
for not getting the result they wanted, they have to know that you're going to be the same leader no matter what the result is. You're the same person whether you win or lose. And that resilience, you'd be surprised, but it, players really care about that. Sure. That makes perfect sense. Uh, if there, there, there was a movie made about your life, who would you want to play you? Adam Sandler. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> the dry, stupid jokes. Yeah, that would be that's that's me. That's my life. <laughs> Beautiful. Go to karaoke song. Fifty Cent. Uh, what's it? It's my birthday. What's it called? In the club. In the club. <laughs> it's my birthday. <laughs> that also works. I knew exactly what you were talking about. Let's let's uh, go. I'm yeah. getting hyped just thinking about it. <laughs> What's your, uh, do you have a hidden talent that nobody knows about? A what? A hidden talent. Yes. I can, do you know what a single leg pistol squad is? I do. So I can do that standing on a kettlebell. No what? way. Yeah. I think I did, Holy like, shit. my highest number was seven in a row. That was the most I can Standing go. on a kettlebell? So when you say standing on a kettlebell, what part? Laying it on its side? No. Standing on the small part, yeah. like on, the ridge? On the handle? Yeah. Okay, so your foot is, is my hand right now. And and the, is the ridge facing this way? Or is it's face. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> what the fuck, dude? How? <laughs> Someone dared me to try it. Like, they saw it on Instagram. How do you still have an angle? Listen, let me tell you something. I can be incredibly immature. <laughs> so when someone dares me to do something, I'm going to do it. I don't care if I die. <laughs> so... <laughs> Holy shit. So he dared me to do it. And then I, at first I had to get my balance right. Sure. I had to like stand on it. But the thing is like, it wasn't that hard because when I was in Italy, like we would say, you know, the Swiss balls. Yes. Mm -hmm. What do you call Bosu balls? I think so. so yeah. Yeah. yeah but, oh, they're like the half balls. Not the half balls, like the actual ball. Uh, th those are Swiss, Swiss balls. balls. Yeah. We had to stand on that, stand on it. And then somebody would throw weights at you and you have to catch it standing on the Swiss ball. <laughs> So, like that, like in terms of stability and balance for your knees and ankles, like it was just like the the hardest one I've done is standing on the Swiss ball, and then somebody throw you know the bar that people use for the bench press. Yes. So it's like ten pounds on either side, and then they throw it at me, and I catch it standing on the Swiss ball. But like the bar, they throw the bar. They at throw you. the bar at me. Not like throwing like, like a, a round weight. No, no, or no, anything. no. The actual bar, and I catch it, and then I do squats or overheads. So, like, doing the pistol squat was not... It was hard getting balanced first. But because I already do a lot of stability and balance stuff, like, on the Swiss ball, that kind of transitioned into the pistol squat. Unbelievable, <laughs> dude. Unbelievable. Gross. That's the best answer we've ever had to that question, by the yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think it is the Bosu. I'll I, show you I'll show you a video of it off air. That's unbelievable. I would love to see that's that. That's fantastic. Uh, what do you like to do in your free time? Uh, I'm a big reader. Uh, I meditate. I'd like to spend a lot of time alone, actually. I know it sounds depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I actually enjoy solitude. I enjoy being alone. Um, like I love hanging out with friends and stuff, but I'm the type of guy that I, re I really need like three, four hours of the day to be by myself, to like reorganize my thoughts, think about the next training session, the next day, what do I need to do, did I miss something? And then uh, I spend a lot of time, like I have a gratitude journal that I write in every night. I have a regular journal for work, for training that I bring with me. So I just try to, I try to, I try to enjoy being by myself, uh, probably more than the average person. Okay. What does your meditative practice look like? Uh, 
it's between 10 and 15 minutes and I'm just laying on the bed with my eyes closed, no music. And the breathing exercise is four seconds inhale, holding my breath for seven seconds and then exhaling slowly for eight seconds. And you just count, just focusing on the breath, just pure breath work? Yeah. I don't know how true this is, but an expert once told me that doing 15 minutes of that has the same effect on your body as four hours of REM sleep. Wow. So I trust her. Like she's, she's done a lot of talks and stuff like that. So I definitely feel it. Hey, uh, somebody that, that I enjoyed listening to, this might've been Tim Ferriss, but anyway, I think it was Tim Ferriss said that, uh, meditation is like a warm bath for your mind. Mm. I take cold showers in the morning. So every morning, not every morning, but some mornings I take really cold showers. I just become more productive. Like it's I, just I, a, it's yeah. a real wake up call taking a cold shower. Yeah. Is there any, is there any like criteria that like when you wake up, you're like, today's a cold, cold shower day, or is it just like how you wake up or what whatever the day has planned for you good question i think a lot of it is affected by my quality of sleep so if i sleep well i'll probably take a really cold a, a really really cold shower if you if sleep, sleep well. well yeah if i don't sleep well i'll just be like yeah no i'm not doing this <laughs> it's like yeah no go take a hike yeah I'll just take a hot shower so it's a, it's a, it can be a willpower thing yeah and also like you you only have a certain amount of willpower in a day and while a cold shower is good, like maybe it saps your willpower a little too much if you're not feeling great. Well, that's that's another thing that I feel people like they get wrong, especially in the states. Like, there's a difference between motivation and discipline. Mm. Motivation is overrated. I don't really care about motivation because it's not something you control. Like, even in the span of a day, your motivation is going to go up and down, right? Like, for most of the day, you're actually demotivated. But discipline is 100% in your control. Discipline is something you can control. So. I always try to say that to players, like motivation, like rah, 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 intensity, cool. But endurance is more important. Discipline is more important. What in Chattanooga have you not done yet? You haven't been here all that long yet. Hiking. I'm just dying yeah. to go hiking someday. Yeah, I'm hoping Chris takes me someday. Carefully, might take you on a trail run. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not falling for that. <laughs> he keeps inviting me to his run club. I was like, dude, do I, do I look like I want to be like... He's just going to make me look bad because he's so fit, obviously. Like, the guy runs marathons. And so. it's like 100 degrees outside. Pass. Right now? No. No. Having, having, having done that at one point in my life uh, as, a, as a fairly competitive runner, absolutely not. I'm very good at lounging <laughs> and Same. sitting. Same. So, so <laughs> doing you, nothing. If you like a, a cold dunk in the water, a cold plunge... If you hike in board shorts, uh, Juan or someone else can take you. He, he's a great one. There's there's a lot of blue holes, like little swimming holes that you can mm. go on a hike, and then they have these little swimming holes. You can ju- you can jump in, you can wade in, you can. Sometimes there's rope swings, sometimes there's just you know hangout spots. But it's very cool and it's very refreshing. Very cold, mm. and that's one of the reasons actually you see so many people. I don't know if you've seen them yet. Chacos, the um, the sandals that are they're hard bottoms and they have like leather, not leather, um, synthetic straps mm. because you can hike in them. They're they're comfortable. They have a very solid sole. They have an arch support, but also you can get in the water with them and not worry about like cutting your feet or whatever. So people will hike in chacos and board shorts, jump in the water, swim around, get back out. You know, quite regularly, I will see the guys on like off days, off weekends, like go into the interesting. Oh, go into the blue hole. Like you can ask pretty much anyone on the team, and they'll yeah. be like, oh yeah, it's this place. Like yeah, there's a bunch of blue holes, but uh, you should definitely check some of those out. Um, favorite TV or Netflix show? Wow. Do you have That's one right one. now? Oh, uh, there's a few. Yeah, there's a few. Billions. I'm a huge fan of Billions. 
it's on Prime. Have you, have you either of you seen it? I've, I've heard of it. I've never seen it. I have not. So there's that. Uh, are you saying like shows that I'm watching now or shows that I've watched in the past? Let's do shows you're watching now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I want both questions to be clear. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah. Billions definitely won. What am I watching now? Ozark. I know I'm late into the game. No, no, no. No spoilers here, but it's it's great. I just started season show. two, so I'm binging that. Uh, I just finished a couple of weeks ago Mindhunter, which is fascinating on Netflix. And yeah, that's it for what for what I'm currently currently watching. If you were giving someone an all-time recommendation, like if you haven't seen X, you have to see it, what would it be? Show? Yeah. True Detective Season 1. There's there's not a better TV show on planet Earth. It's with Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. But yeah, so every season is like different scenes, different characters. So like but True Detective Season 1, okay. for me, is the greatest television show ever. Uh, I love it. Matthew, take us through some uh, soccer coach uh banter questions uh-oh uh so uh we all know that that chris is an incredibly fit uh long distance uh masterful runner but is he the like the fastest like the quickest coach on the team over a short distance 50 50 yards i'm pretty fast on short distances <laughs> as a goalkeeper it's kind of like that's all we yeah, train yeah, yeah, yeah is 10 like 15 20 yard sprint I don't know if I'm faster than him. I, I really, there's no way to measure that. Can't, can't, well, there is yes, a way yes, to yes, measure Yes, it. there is. There is a way to measure this. Let's I, set it up. Listen, I, 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 but I need to emphasize this. Like, if, if Chris is a cheetah, I'm a koala bear. <laughs> I just, I enjoy sitting like a sloth, doing nothing. And that's why being a goalkeeper is great. 98% of the game, I'm a koala. John Burke then, last night. <laughs> right. Just hanging out. Uh, yeah. We, we were trying to get someone from the sideline to bring him a chair, but they wouldn't bring him a chair during the game. <laughs> Could have used it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, I, yeah, I love Berkey. He's a, he's a fantastic goalkeeper. Great guy. Like, second choice goalkeepers don't get enough credit, I feel, because without them, you can't have a really, you can't have a training session. Yeah. So, like, if you have a second choice, and I've seen this, I've seen this all throughout my career. Second choice or third choice goalkeepers being pouty, self pity not bringing the standard high but to have a second choice goalkeeper that's that invested it just raises the level of everyone on the team and i remember pep guardiola he gave a an interview i forgot on what show but somebody asked him like who is the most valuable person on the team in training and he said scott carson who's the third choice goalkeeper hasn't played a single minute and they asked him why everybody was expecting him to say kevin de bruyne sure. he goes because he raises the standards, he reminds people to work hard, and he brings himself to work every single day. So when Ederson needs a rest, and then the second choice keeper and the third choice goalkeeper are doing a seven-a-side game, they need everyone to be on, on point. Like, everyone matters. And that's what Burke brings to the team. I love that. Best dressed coach off the field. So on game day, I've noticed you guys were all dressing alike. It's, it's um, very professional and adorable. Yeah. Um, but best, best dressed coach away from the field. Jordan. Yeah. I, I I think I know the answer to this, but were you a trash talker in your playing days? Yes. <laughs> um, what was, did you have any particular go-tos? Maybe it was subject matter or type of thing that you like to... Depends on the opponent, especially if I think, if I know they're better than me. Um, 
I tend to go in harder. <laughs> Try to get them off Sometimes their game. Sometimes I wasn't so successful. Sometimes I had to eat my words pretty quickly. But yeah, yeah, I talk on penalties. Oh my God. I've never lost a penalty shootout in my life. Whether it's youth, amateur, pro, never lost a PK. Obviously, you need your teammates to win penalty yeah, shootouts. Yeah, yeah. But some of the stuff I would say, I can't repeat what I said here. But <laughs> listen, the, I, I hate head. losing. I just hate losing. So there was no way I was going to let you be comfortable. Referees hated me as well, especially on, on penalties. <laughs> yeah. So, and by the way, I will say one thing about penalties during the game. And I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast to look this up. But there was a game between Man United and Aston Villa. Bruno was taking a penalty in the 90th minute. Scores nil-nil. So he's got the penalty now to win the game. Bruno is surrounded by seven Aston Villa players. Seven. And then you have Emiliano Martinez. Who's a wild boy. Who's an amazing penalty kick, penalty kick saver. He's going up to Bruno. He's talking to him. He goes, I know you don't want to take this. I know you want Ronaldo to take this penalty. <laughs> so just give him the ball. Give him the ball. Why are you taking this penalty? So those seven players, completely on top of him. None of the United players were protecting Bruno from that. And then he completely misses the goal. I remember this. I remember and this you, play. And then you remember, and then you look at Liverpool, how they handle penalty shoot, uh, penalty during the game. When Salah takes a penalty, Jordan Henderson is his bodyguard. You, if you wanted to talk to Salah, you're not going to get within five yards of him. Jordan Henderson stands on the penalty spot, pushes people away, grabs the goalkeeper by the chest, pushes them back to the goal, puts pressure on the referee. They protect their penalty kick takers. And... Again, we talk about how much of it is psychological and mental. In those situations, it is more psychological and social than anything else. There was, um, that, I think that that like, a different player taking the ball and holding it for a minute before giving it to the kick taker became popular about two years ago. Yeah. Um, and I remember CFC did it. Richard took the ball. And we had, we'd never seen it before. Like Richard grabbed the ball and like, went to the penalty spot. And we were like, what is going on? And then he handed it to Marcus. And it was one of those things where it's like, oh, like that was the first time, not the first time I'd seen it, but the first time I'd seen like, um, we just took a direct play out of like, and like watched it live without like the TV cameras doing whatever, like just seeing it all, all happening in front of us. And it was like the week before. I want to say it was that same one you're talking about with with Bruno Fernandez. Like, I want to say it was around that same time period. And it was just like, oh, this is like guys making a plan ahead of time, right? It's not like the moment preparation, coming, preparation. preparation. And uh, we did that at Loudon. Yeah, Panos, who's now playing for Phoenix Rising, tremendous player. But he came up to me one day. He goes, "Hey, like, what do you think of?" Because Zach Ryan was the penalty kick taker, designated PK taker, and Panos was like, what if I take the ball and I let them like trash talk me and like gang up on me, and then at the last second I give it to Zach? And I was like, that is brilliant. <laughs> Do it. And we did it. We did that. We did that against Oakland Roots. Panos took the ball away, started hounding him, hounding the ref, the goalkeeper. He's, he's a really good goalkeeper, by the way, that guy. He came up to us, started talking to Panos and stuff, and then he just gave the ball to Zach. And everyone was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, they, they, Zach hammered it in the bottom corner. But yeah, like preparation matters. Like that's how you determine if someone is competitive. Is how prepared they are. It's not how loud they shout or how fast they run. What's the weirdest thing that an opposing player has ever told you on the field, like or trash talked to you on the field that you can repeat? Like the, weir the weird, the weird, weird. I can't mention this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that one doesn't get as many responses as we'd like because yeah. it seems like pe guys go, uh, guys get real, uh, 
really aggressive with those. We'll pivot to food questions here. Okay. Um, what, f- what, hey, what, what about an opposing coach? <laughs> Last night. Uh, or, or, you know. Do, co- do coaches uh, talk a lot of trash has, on the sidelines? What's that? Do coaches talk a lot of trash on the sidelines? Like, do you, do you guys hear other coaches, like, talking a lot during the game? Trash you, talking? Are you talking about when I was a player? Or? No, I mean, like, so in your, in your coaching life so far, what's, like, the weirdest thing that... Because sometimes, sometimes coaches draw back a little bit mm-hmm. with one another. What's the weirdest thing a coach has said? Or, like, you know, because like sometimes there's, like, actual, like, the banter and, and, and the moment or whatever. And then, like, they sometimes some a coach just says something that's completely off. Like, like, what? Yeah, that's never happened, like, with me as a coach. And generally, the rare instances where it did happen, you just have to ignore it and just talk to the fourth official. Because I think it's an automatic yellow card if you engage with the coaches on the opposite sideline so uh, try not to engage with players or coaches from the other team it's more about the relationship with the referee but again even that like i need to do a better job of that like i need to stop worrying about things that i can't control and that's referees how do you feel um what do you feel like is a good strategy for engaging with the fourth like how do you manage a fourth during the game depends on the fourth you know it depends depends who they are how old they are their level of experience um, and that's hard to gauge. Like we had a fourth when I was at Loudon, we had a fourth who he was actually really good because no matter how angry we got and we were justified in how angry we were <laughs> because the referee was making a lot of bad decisions, but like he would come over to us. He goes, guys, I know I saw it. I promise I'll talk that half. Like he did a really good job of accepting how we felt like he was emotionally intelligent yeah and then he just kept that line of communication open and he didn't take anything personally again it goes back to in the u.s i feel the referees they're so quick to giving yellow cards i've gotten a yellow card at every level of the game ncaa usl championship usl2 youth high school like at every level that i've coached i've received the yellow card it's just and i don't feel like i'm like i'm the type of guy that likes to put pressure on referees but in Europe, it, it's very rarely that referees will go to the coaches and give them yellow cards. So, sorry, did I answer your question? You're, you said, um, I haven't heard anything about coaches speaking to us apart from last night, but <laughs> that's the level. And um, how do I manage the fourth? As a player, we always try to put pressure on referees. Always. So, like... We would like gang up on the referee, especially if it was a hard tackle. And look, like I don't have measurable data to prove this, but they get influenced. Sure, I think they get influenced. Absolutely. Like I remember when Rooney and and, and Ronaldo, when like that England Portugal thing where uh, Ronaldo got sent off. Sorry, Rooney got sent off, and the referee blew the whistle. He pointed uh, a free kick, but he wasn't reaching for a card. And then Ronaldo and all the Portuguese players piled on on him. And all of a sudden, he went to his back pocket and gave the red card to Rooney. So they, they're humans. They're human. They definitely get influenced. But again, like it, it's a fine line between focusing on things you can't control. But then the other truth, which is the opposite side, you know you can influence them. Yeah. And again, I, I'm, I'm trying to be more like Rod and Chris now. Where, hey, I'm focused on our game. It's what we can control. Because that's the right way to do it, in my opinion. Food questions. Favorite pregame meal? Now now that you're a coach, do you have a particular one? Probably a protein bar because I like to be on an empty, on an empty stomach. Oh, you're one of those. That's, that's such a player <laughs> thing to say too. I don't know how – did you do that as a player as well? 
No, I had to eat well before before a game. Okay, so you had you had opposite. I don't. I, there's players we have, we have on this podcast, and and they'll go like, oh no, I'll have a little bit of fruit or I'll have a protein bar. I need to be like feel like light and and mm. hungry and like I have to eat. If I'm any athletic pursuit of any kind, like I can't eat 30 minutes for a game. I got to eat about an hour and a half for right. it, but I, I got to be full or like close to it mm-hmm. because I'll run out of gas 10 minutes in, but mm-hmm. a protein bar. So you like, you like a little bit of, you like to be light and on your I feet. I like to be hungry. Hungry. <laughs> hungry. See, I get angry. That's the point. <laughs> I get hangry. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Uh, favorite post-game meal as a coach? It <laughs> depends on the result. Uh <laughs> Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll like generally, I, I'm not even kidding when I say this, but like there's games where we lose as coaches, and I I don't eat after the game. I know it's not good, but I just like this is what people don't understand about coaching is the joy of winning lasts about 20 minutes. The pain of losing stays with you until the next game. It mm. Stays with you for six, seven days. So it's that balance between. Okay, you won the game, but then as a coach, you can't really enjoy the moment because you're thinking, okay, about recovery. Okay, what about this player? This player got hurt. This player's low on confidence. You're like, there's a million things to worry about. So, yeah, if we lose, I, I don't eat. If we win, I'll have like a pizza with my coworkers. <laughs> nice. Uh, seltzer versus beer. Any preferences? Mm, what's a... Wait, sorry. A white, cl- a white claw me. or what's a truly? A have you had a white claw or a truly yet? No. All right. Well, we'll then it's beer. It's on my bucket list. Yeah, we'll have to get you a. Get you, so it's basically just it's seltzer water and alcohol five percent. It's basically like a, you know, vodka tonic would be, but it's a it's like like a beer. Yeah, become very popular in the last couple of years. Um, so after you've been a Chinese brewing company now, after a few a few wins, um, you have a do you have a favorite um, celebratory beer? No, I generally don't drink. Like I'm not a big alcohol person. I just stick with water. Discipline, man. The discipline of this guy. <laughs> the discipline of this guy. At the hotel buffet, um, which coach or player you can snitch on the coaches or the players gets the wildest breakfast? I don't know yet. I'm, I don't know yet because I haven't haven't been in those situations yet. Ah, uh, so you were gonna find out in California. I want to ask you that question after California. <laughs> yeah. Fries. Obviously, you spent a lot of time in England. Um, I don't know how you feel about you know chips and fries and whatever else, but regardless of what you call them, there's, there's curly fries, there's waffle fries, you know, there's big thick cut fries, there's potato wedges, there's all different kinds. What's your preference? If you have a preference, anything that would get under the skin of the British. <laughs> I, mean, My guy. I, I just My feel, guy. I just feel like they're so butthurt from American independence. Yeah. <laughs> like when I'm, when I was living in the UK, like I don't have an American accent, but my accent is closer to American than it is to British. And it's like, people give me looks and stares and it's like, will you, it was like 200 years ago. Like, will you chill out? <laughs> You've been overtaken. It's okay. It happens to the best of us. There's no need to be bitter. I love it so much. Do you dip your uh, fries in anything? The Brits dip their fries in mayo. mayonnaise. Yeah. Definitely not mayonnaise. Uh, ketchup. Ketchup. That's good. Um, do you drink coffee? Yes. You don't, you don't like tea? No. How much coffee do you have to have in the morning? Just a regular me- medium-sized coffee. How do you drink it? How do you take it? Milk, sugar? Uh, a little bit of creamer and like uh, a teaspoon of stevia. How do you feel about pineapple on pizza? Never tried it. 
That was not what I was expecting. <laughs> Never tried it. I lo- pizza is my guilty meal. Like that's the meal that I that I love the most. So but I've never had pineapple on it. What do you normally order for pizza? Just a cheese pizza. From where? You've only been here like, you know, a month or whatever. Yeah. Like, from where? So over here, obviously Papa John's is the one after the game that we have. That was pretty good actually last night. And then the second one is Domino's. But I need to try more of the local. I mean, you've got one right stuff. right down the street from you, from your place. Pizza Bros. Pizza Bros. Oh, I, oh, I tried that one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was good. I customized my pizza there. Hey. So I got like, uh, what was it? Feta cheese with pepperoni. No, it was good. It was great. Nice. I'll definitely go back there. Uh, if you get a burger, what kind of cheese do you get? Swiss. Yes. <laughs> Toppings on oh a burger. God. Mm, this is gonna sound weird, but I like pickles on my okay. burger. What else? Like, if you have your ideal burger, yeah. What uh, what are you getting on it? And what temperature? You mean how? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, how are you getting cooked? Yeah. Medium rare. That's how I like it. Medium rare, and yeah, just a pickled tomato, Swiss cheese. For me, the the deal breaker is the bread. It's the Ooh, bun. What do you like? Uh, I don't know how to articulate it in English. Um, I don't know. Just like soft, warm, not like crunchy. I don't like that. Okay. Sounds like a brioche bun to me. Like a, a bigger, thicker, yes. like softer. That's the word pillowy. I was looking for. Brioche. brioche. Yeah. Yeah. Hot dogs. Do you- I haven't had one in many years. Okay, so the, this podcast has some has some particular me in particular. I have some takes on podcasts, and you know, I, I, I podcasts. Excuse me, I have that too on uh, on hot dogs. So I mean, Americans have a really particular take on hot dogs, meaning like I think everybody grew up having hot dogs at some point, and so the hot dogs are like. I get man. I put mayonnaise on my hot dogs. It's not the only it's thing. Gross. I, it's not the only thing I put on my hot dogs. Sometimes I do only put mayonnaise just to troll people. Um, so but gross. I like I like ketchup i like mayo and i like uh, mustard on my hot dog altogether and i like an all beef dog in a potato bun that's Mm -hmm. what i like but some a lot of people think that's sacrilege do you have preferences on how to get a hot dog ketchup and mustard no mayonnaise no mayo all right mayo is just gross in general yeah if you're getting a steak medium rare Mm -hmm. what do you want for sides with a steak your broccoli guy sweet potato fries no i'm not done with the vegetable phase (laughs) you're not a player player anymore anymore. (laughs) get rid of that see this is good like you're gonna you're gonna like really snap you've you've snapped out of like you had needing to be healthy for a while and then a few years down the road you're gonna be like well i should probably have a vegetable like once a week or something his discipline right now is being focused (laughs) on things that that make him a better coach and eating broccoli is not high on that list no priorities (laughs) fast food Pizza is my go-to one. If, do you do you have um, if you're gonna? Uh, I think most people have a go-to fast food. If they're, and it may not be the same thing every time, but if they're feeling either really really good, so they want to celebrate, maybe it's. I think Coach Randy of the women's team said he liked a, um, uh, a I think it was a double bacon. It was a burger from um, Dairy Queen. Dairy Queen, which was like a really out of left field, and a and a um, and a. Shake or smoothie or something. Um, I like I like Taco Bell as an example. As as a uh, you know, I I want something that's really like 
either I'm feeling great or I'm feeling terrible, so I'm just going to eat something terrible. Do you have a go-to on either side of the spectrum? Like you're feeling great or you're feeling terrible and you're just going to have some fast food that you definitely know is bad? Terrible, yes. Uh, almond brittle butter ice cream. Ooh. Is it Jenny's? Is that what it is? Yeah, it's Jenny's. Yeah. And how much are you eating? Half a pint. <laughs> Let's go. Spoon straight out of the uh, straight out of the container. No shame, mate. <laughs> no shame. Absolutely. So after a loss, if you if you if you're really in your feels, you might dig into some ice cream. Oh my god, man! There was this game for Loudon that we lost against Indy Eleven. Like we're winning one nil. We're absolutely smashing them to bits. And then one of our Zach Ryan, the guy I mentioned earlier about the penalty, he 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 struck a ball. It must have been thirty five yards out. Like it was from downtown LA. He hit it. It hit the crossbar, bounced to a yard inside the goal and back out. And the referee no didn't goal. give it. And then in the 11, go back and they scored two goals against us. I'll tell you what, man. That game, I went full pint. <laughs> full pint. Yeah. I get it. Um, so you're of Saudi descent, right? But born in Lebanon? Lebanese descent. So I was born and raised in Lebanon. Um with to parents who are Lebanese, but I got Saudi Arabian citizenship later. Okay. While, while you were playing there? Yeah. Okay. So what is, and you can pick where quote unquote home is for this question. What is a food you miss most from home? So that could be Lebanon. That could be your time spent in Saudi Arabia. That could even be your time spent in England. Like, do you have a thing that, well, now that you're here in the States, that you really miss food-wise? Mm. Yeah. In Saudi Arabia, there's a dish called shakshuka. Uh, I'll show you a picture of it. I have it on my phone, but it's absolutely delicious. So that's the first thing that pops in my head. And then in Lebanon, there's something called lahma bajin. So it's like dough bread, like a thin layer of bread with meat and spices and a little bit of like green pepper chopped up into tiny pieces, folded in. It's like warm and mushy. Hmm. Yeah. I'm getting hungry right now thinking about that. Yeah. What's the what's the best Lebanese restaurant? Like, is there a Lebanese restaurant in Chattanooga that you found? No, but there was really a really good one in Des Moines, Iowa, when I was there. Really? Yeah, Open Sesame. It's called. So, if you're ever in Des Moines, Iowa, Open Sesame is the best Lebanese one of the best Lebanese restaurants I've been to in the U.S. Wow. Yeah. I I wish we. I don't even know if. Yeah, we definitely don't have a Lebanese restaurant here that I know of, and I don't know that we have anything. Like within close driving distance yeah, approaching like so my i think i told you my dad grew up part of his life in, in lebanon and then my grandmother always made dishes from there at like family gatherings mm. even though they're not lebanese like that was just a part of like their family culture and so she'd make tabbouleh and and just a million different things right and, and unfortunately none of my aunt like my aunt, all of my aunts can make like one dish or another but they can't do a full um a full meal but she still does and so like when i go the only like food i guess that i was regularly exposed to that wasn't like just classic american food growing up was lebanese food so if we find a good lebanese restaurant or we're told there's a good lebanese restaurant that is like one of my first places that i want to go yeah lebanese honestly cuisine is, it's the only thing we're good at like as as a people is food but you're so good at it <laughs> so when it good. comes to running a country or basic human compassion or uh, yeah no the food is the only good thing we specialize in <laughs> 
but it, it's unbelievable. There's a, there's a comedian as a joke that says like the the worst countries the the worst the uh, the country is at treating their 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 women or their or their people the better the food is. He's like and that's he just interesting. Names, he just names all these countries and he's like the countries where we give like the most rights. He's like terrible at food. He's like I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying there's a correlation. Yeah, see, like Norway. That's a good example of Norway because like Norway has the best like human rights record ever or like one of the best and like their food is terrible. <laughs> You know what? You might be on to something. Yeah, but how do you square that with, like, I don't know, France or Italy? If you've been to France or Italy, they don't treat their women well. <laughs> I guess this is the part of the podcast that's getting cut out. <laughs> <laughs> Especially uh, if we sign French players. Yeah. No, it's just, uh, and it's also just a joke, so it doesn't perfectly, it doesn't perfectly go. But there's a, there's a little kernel of truth to some of that. Uh, do you have a, a specialty meal that you cook? So if you're trying to, if you're having people over, or you're trying to impress somebody, or maybe yeah. it's a comfort meal for you. Do you have a thing that you're good at cooking that you like to cook? Yeah, I have this thing. My yeah, my ex girlfriend taught me. She's Mexican. She taught me how to. So like you know the chorizo, mm -hmm. and then so that you cut it up into pieces, and then nachos, just regular nachos that you break, and you also turn it into tiny little pieces. You mix them together, and then what's the green green salsa? Mm -hmm. You put that in there as well. So you put it on a frying pan, mash it up until it's like a big blob, and then you put that on the side, and then you, I think it's sour cream that you put right next to it, so it's like a warm dish, but sour cream is really cold, yeah. so they like complement each other. That's probably the thing I'm I'm best at in cooking. Eat with a spoon, spoon in, and then dip it in the sour cream. Yeah. Is there something that you you've always wanted to to cook, and I've never really like. Maybe mastered or have have just want to see someone that's better at it than you like learn from or uh, Chris's banana bread. I would love to learn how to do that. It's never made me banana bread. This guy. We we'll have to get Chris on here and yell at him about uh, <laughs> about not hooking us some banana bread. My uh, yeah, my mom when I was growing up made banana bread, and I haven't. I now you say that I haven't had banana bread in forever. Now I'm I'm getting so I've got, hungry. I've got a. Uh, some a couple of bananas in the freezer that are starting to get to the point and it's about to be time to make some banana and, bread and yeah it's we're, we're getting we're getting pretty close and i'm very excited omar thank you for joining us today is there anything you would like to leave the listeners with maybe a place to follow you on social media is there anything we didn't ask you about um that you were hoping we'd ask about no i just uh i appreciate all the support from you guys from all the fans you know and the truth is we need the fans we, we need you we need you guys so the more present, the more vocal you are in the stadium, uh, the more chance we're going to have at winning. So our success is your success. Awesome. Is there? Are you on social media at all? No. Smarter for you. I'm on Twitter. Yeah, you have my handle. And I'm not on Twitter, but I, I logged into the pod account to because I was told you were on Twitter <laughs> to to reach out to you um, to hassle people. <laughs> yeah, no, that's Matthew's domain is is the Twitter domain. So we'll we'll if the people want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter. Um, thank you. We will see you in um, about ten days from this recording um, at Finley Stadium, and then those of us in Macon, California, we'll see you after that. Brilliant, e everybody. Thank you for listening. Catch you later. Peace.